Welcome to the Hearsay Storytelling Podcast. I'm Karen Stein. Hearsay is a monthly show dedicated to the art of telling stories on stage. This episode, Exquisite Corpus, was recorded live at the Workshop Brewing Company in Traverse City, Michigan in January 2020. After you listen to the stories, stick around for a conversation with our special guests, the famous Crystal Frost and her infamous brother Joe. They will be speaking with me about the theme for our next show. In our first story, Leslie Ty reflects on how her relationship with her body has been both loving and challenging. So I know that I'm not alone in saying that I've had a complicated relationship with my body. Um, we all feel that way, probably, right? Right? I hope so. But to a certain extent, I have always been very comfortable with how I looked, like my image. Um, I was like eight or nine years old when I discovered my idol, Cindy Lauper. And just that image of her on the She's So Unusual album was just so amazing to me. Like all the other kids talked about wanting to fit in. I did not want to fit in. I wanted to be different from everyone else. And I would say that really even throughout the most awkward years of my life, like middle school, braces, acne, like I actually, I felt pretty good about the image that I projected. Um, You know, I had cool hair, like started uh, dyeing my hair in like eighth grade. I had, you know, I loved to completely change my look every day. Um, You know, I would take like, you know, my jeans, my jeans and like cut them up and make them into skirts with like patchwork stuff. And I just, I... I felt really good about, you know, being this, like, you know, chameleon and looking different and and standing out in that way. But the truth was that under these clothes, um, in terms of my body, I was like probably everybody else and that I felt I was very unusual, like I was an alien. I was actually an early bloomer. So um, puberty hit me pretty early and pretty hard. Like, I stopped growing at five feet, and, like, I was, like, hips and boobs, like, suddenly. And I am not talking about these lovely B cups that I have now. Um, No, uh, my boobs were not just bigger. They were different sizes. And we all know that boobs are not the same size, right? We all know that, like, body parts are not really symmetrical. But I'm talking about I had, like, a D and then, like, a double D, like significant difference. Like, like I could not find a bra that actually fit. I would have had to like stitch together like a Frankenstein's monster bra, you know, to make it work. Um, you know, I just, I've always had a really big imagination, so I kind of imagined myself like the hunch boob rather than the hunch back, you know? So like, just like imagine me like kind of, you know, hunched over like one boob down and like, you know, roaming the lingerie section, you know, sanctuary, you know, among like all the C cup mannequins, like just mocking me. So, you know, again, I would like really be put together and cool and different to try and mask the fact that underneath it was just like basically a monster in my, in my kind of eyes. So when I was kind of midway through college, I did what so many girls do when they don't like their body, and I went to see the plastic surgeon. Um, And of course, when you go in to see a doctor about a breast reduction, you have to get naked. So this was really like my first experience getting naked in front of someone like as a young adult. I mean, I, I went away to school starting at 15, so I had roommates starting at 15, but I can tell you that nobody saw me naked. I mean, I did theater, but I got to be a master at, like, changing my clothes without showing anything between my sternum and my knees. Like, changing my, sh- my clothes without changing my clothes, <laughs> without showing anything. Um, so, you know, that was really fun. Um, they, you know, they, of course, you have to get undressed. You have to, you know, take a picture. They have to, like, draw on your boobs. Like, okay, your aerial's going to go up here, and your nipples will be here. Um, but it ended up being like one of the best decisions of my life. Um, surgery, you know, was, went, it was not a fun experience, but the after effect was great. I finally, I I remember like the first shirt, I still have it actually, even though I I don't, I can't really wear it anymore, but I still have the first shirt I bought after the surgery because it was just like, you know, it was like snug and it was so cute. My boobs looked so cute. Now I could like go buy frilly bras. It was so exciting. 
And so I, I entered into my 20s you know, finally being okay about you know, getting naked, about taking my clothes off. I was like, okay, I'm ready for someone to see me naked. Woohoo! In fact, it kind of kind of became a little bit of a thing. <laughs> uh, again, I did theater, so I was in this production, uh, this play called Hair. And, and originally, she was not going to do nudity. She was like, no, no, we're not. And then like, we got into the rehearsals, and she was like, ah, I kind of want to do nudity. She's like, not everybody has to do it. I'm not gonna force anybody to get naked. Like maybe some people could just wear like nude unitards. If you've ever worn a unitard before, you know that's just as bad as being naked. So, you know, a few weeks before we're opening and we go backstage during the part uh, when we're supposed to get naked, we haven't done it yet, and the director's back there, and she takes her clothes off, and we take our clothes off, and it was awesome! And, you know, so for three weekends, like, I got naked in front of my friends, in front of strangers, um, and I just really felt like this is my body, and I love it, and it's great. Um, and, yeah, it, it got to be a little bit of a thing, you know, Flash my tatas on stage, flash them off stage, cast parties. In fact, when I um, was moving from Los Angeles, where I lived, up to here to start teaching high school, I had several friends who wrote my little going away book, like, don't flash your boobs at your students, okay? <laughs> so, so I moved into my 30s, and my attitude about my body it matured a little bit. You know, again, I was still really confident, but I wasn't necessarily showing off to everybody. Um, and I was becoming the strongest. Like, my body was becoming the strongest it had ever been. And that was due partly to this really wonderful um, uh, pole fitness studio that was here in Traverse City for a while that was run by a couple different of my friends ran it. And um, I got to tell you, doing aerial arts, like, you want to talk about strength. Um, from your core, from your arms, everything. It, it made me so strong. I felt so good. Um, and um, at 37, I finally started seeing the person that I knew I was going to spend the rest of my life with. And I started to feel like, like I'm an adult now. Like, my adult life is starting. Um, we started a little theater company together. Um, it just felt like this is, like again, this kind of matureness of like who I am and, and so comfortable in that. And I was not ready for what my body was going to start doing, um, how it was going to start changing this time on the inside. So it started with the most insane period of my life. And I am talking about menstruation, OK? I'm going to go there. I'm not talking about a time of my life. I'm talking about a scene from Carrie happening <laughs> in my nether regions. Yeah, I am talking, I'm sorry, but I'm talking about so much blood that it shot the tampon out of my body into the toilet. <laughs> like, horrifying. And I knew there was something terribly wrong, you know? So I, I went to see, uh, I got all the fun tests. I got the lovely, uh, you know, vaginal wand ultrasound that I'm sure some of you ladies are familiar with. And... Um, turned out that I had a, a uterine polyp that was actually very common, right? Uh, things like cysts, fibroids, polyps, these are common things, but we don't talk about them. And so, you know, we just, just needed to get it removed. It was going to be fine. So I see the, uh, a new gynecologist, um, just going to be the routine kind of check-in, uh, set up the surgery. <laughs> when you are naked from the waist down with your feet up in the stirrups, the thing you don't want to hear is, wow, well, I've never seen that before. <laughs> so apparently my body had decided, you know, this polyp that was still attached, but that it wasn't supposed to be there. So my body was actually trying to birth this polyp. Like, like seriously, my cervix was dilated, and like the head was like crowning out and she's like, uh, well, so I'm thinking that maybe I should just, like, you know, get in there and just, like, twist it off, pull it out, like, right now, and rather than the surgery. Yes, yes, it happened. It actually wasn't the worst thing that's happened to me, believe it or not. Um, but 
at the time, too, she was like, oh, um, you know, this is like, if you want to have kids, man, you, obviously your body is like, you're going to, you know, easy time birthing, right? Got the, you know, just got it right out of there. And uh, those words were really kind of cutting not too long after that when I found myself and my husband in her office again talking about infertility issues. So flash forward to a couple years after that appointment, just starting that conversation and a ridiculous amount of tests. I mean, dye up the fallopian tubes to like check on that and ultrasounds and so many people sticking their hands up my hoo-ha. Hormones and egg retrieval and egg plantation and just absolute failure, not to mention the money. And I headed into my 40s just feeling absolutely betrayed by my body. Just, and suddenly all the strength that I had too was gone because when you do IVF, you're not allowed to exercise. They have a no bouncing rule. So I had to stop doing pole fitness, I had to stop doing anything. And then when it failed, and when we were like, we don't have the money to keep trying this, you know, I didn't feel like doing anything. I just wanted to, you know, hide. And this body suddenly was like, again, it was like not mine anymore. Um, it just felt like an alien again. And if that wasn't enough, a year after that, the IVF failed, I'm once again in my gynecologist's office because these fibroids, which are very normal, which I've had forever, maybe not forever, but you know, um, I had, uh, they had ballooned. They basically gotten so big um, that I know not only was it like the horror movie scene again, it was also like having sex with my husband who I love was unbearable. It was awful. And the gynecologist is like, the doctor's like, okay, well, you know, you can, you're not anemic. Like, it's not that bad. Like, you could just live with this, you know, until you go into menopause. Or we got to take your uterus. And it was a hard, that was a hard thing to hear. Um, you know, having to let go of a part of your body is not an easy thing. Even if, you know, if it's like, well, it's not doing anything anyway, right? It's useless. So... Um, just two years ago, now this month, actually, at 42, I got to have an epidural because I had a partial hysterectomy and they got to cut right through my abdomen. It was really fantastic. And since then, I can say that, I guess, since then at least, I've, I finally started to crawl and kind of find my way back, finding my way back into my body. I'm starting to work on my strength again. Um, I feel like... Um, I'm starting to kind of get back to that person. I recently actually did some boudoir photos. Uh, and when I look at those, I kind of see a little glimmer of like that fearless 20-something that I was at one point. And um, I've, just, I've just become a big believer in the fact that we have to talk about this. Like We don't talk about our bodies. We don't talk about these things. And we have to because it's like the only way to not feel alone. Like, I wish I could go back to that you know, teenager, and be like, it's okay to talk about your hunch boob. It's okay, because somebody else is like you and is out there, right? The more we talk about it, the more we find so many of us are facing these same problems. Um, you don't have to get physically naked, but it's just good to allow yourself to be a little exposed. Thank you. In the next story, Richard Swanson needs to buy a piece of protective sporting equipment, but he has no idea how to ask for it in French. Thank you. I was working for a large multinational corporation. <laughs> and in the mid-80s, they transferred me to their European headquarters in Brussels, Belgium. So I moved there with my wife and two young daughters, and when I got there, I took up a new hobby, riding jumping horses. This was like a lifelong dream. You know, when I was 14 years old, I worked in a, at a horse farm. I cleaned the stalls. I cleaned the horses. And every day, the people would come and ride their jumping horses. I thought that really looked cool. 
But I figured I'd never be able to do it because they were all rich people. They all came in Cadillacs and Mercedes. But when I got to Belgium, I realized, I found out that it's really not that expensive there and that the average person can, can ride horses. So I did. I was having a great time. I was jumping higher and higher jumps. A lot of the weekends, I would go around to horse shows in France and Belgium, jumping competitions, and just really having a great time. But after a while, I started to experience some discomfort. And uh, yes, in my private area. <laughs> and uh, you know, when you're riding a horse, you, you straddle the horse and feed her down the stirrups. And just think about it, a horse goes to jump a four-foot jump. He actually jumps five feet. I mean, he wants to clear it to be sure his legs don't hit the cross poles. And there is just like an explosion, a thrust when he jumps. It just lifts you right out of the saddle. And there you are, out of the saddle. And then when he comes down on the other side, I am telling you, there's impact, okay? There's impact. And you get smashed down, and you're banged into the saddle. Not once, not twice. I mean, of course, it jumps. It's like 10, 12, 15 times. Impact, impact. That's what I'm talking about, okay? That's the source of this discomfort. So uh, it was getting worse and worse uh, to the extent that uh, I either had to solve the problem or quit riding. And I was thinking, you know, maybe if I just start wearing a jock strap, a little more support, a little less wiggle room, I, I might be good to go. And so I went home, I mentioned that to my wife, and she said, yeah, great idea. I'll go get you one tomorrow. I got to tell you about my wife. I'm telling you, she is the most wonderful person, the most helpful and supportive wife, mother. She was always doing something to help the family, running errands, mending something, fixing something, doing a project, and always with the best attitude. I'm telling you, always with a smile. She was like happy to be doing it. Plus, her French was the best in the family. All four of us were trying to learn French, and she had the best French. So um, I come home from work the next day. I said, hey, Lynn, did you get that jock strap? She said, no. I didn't get it. This was real troublesome. You're going to have to do this yourself. Well, that's not like her at all. So I mean, I had to, I had to ask her, well, my golly, Lynn, what happened? And she said, we have four English to French dictionaries in this house, and jockstrap is not in any of them. <laughs> I don't know if it's because it's two words or because it's such an unusual item, but it's not there, and I had to go to town without the word. <laughs> now, if you've ever been in a foreign country where you didn't speak the language and you didn't have the word, you know you're relegated to hand signals, body language. You know, that's it. What else can you do? So she said she went to a hardware store, or strike that, a sporting goods store, and they said, uh, that's a different story. And, and, and they, told her, they told her they didn't ha have what she was looking for, but they wrote down an address on a piece of paper, gave it to her, she put it in her pocket. And she just went to another store, another sporting goods store. They too said they didn't have what she was looking for, and they also wrote down an address she put in her pocket. When she got to her car, she pulled out the pieces of paper, same address. She said, that's it. That's got to be the jockstrap store of Brussels. And she, she drove all the way across town to the jockstrap store. And when she got there, it, it wasn't a jockstrap store. It was one of these medical supply houses. You know where they sell like wheelchairs and crutches? support hose, tape, but she said, okay, probably jock straps too. <laughs> she said she went in and it was so humiliating, she just had to turn around and leave. So I said, well, Lynn, how did you communicate to these people that what you wanted was a jock strap? And she said, well, that was the easy part. I put my hands in the shape of a triangle. I said, poor monsieur, poor monsieur. And for the horse, they giddy up, giddy up, giddy up, giddy up, poor monsieur, poor monsieur. And, and, and I'm looking, I said, that's, that's pretty good body language. 
However, it's open to more than one interpretation. She said she went in, the first thing they showed her were adult diapers. She said, no, no, that's not it. And then they showed her a display case of vibrators. She said, geez, no, that's not. And when they took her to the condom display, she laughed. It was just too humiliating. So I said, okay, I'm just so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'll see what I can do. So the next day, I go into work. I look at my friend George. George is a Belgian guy. He lived in the States for 10 years, speaks perfect English, and he's an athlete. I said, George, I need to buy a jock strap. He said, oh, no problem. He said, all the sporting goods stores carry them. <laughs> he said, all you have to do is go in and ask for un suspensoir. He said, it's that simple. So I'm going back to my office. I'm fist pumping. I've got the magic word, oh, suspense, wah. I'm telling you, I'm dying to get home to tell Lynn the magic word. It's Friday, I even leave work early. The whole way driving home, I'm thinking, oh, suspense, wah, geez, leave it to the French <laughs> to come up with such a noble, royal, elegant word for this lowly pouch <laughs> that we call a jockstrap. So I get home, I go walking in, she says, oh, geez, you're home early. Too bad. You just missed the girls. They both have sleepovers. And at that moment, I decided not to tell her the magic word. <laughs> Instead, I said, well, let's go out for dinner. So we did. And I intentionally parked about two blocks away from our favorite restaurant, knowing full well that we would have to walk by a sporting goods store. And as she sensed me slowing down for that sporting goods store, she said, forget it. They don't have them. I was there yesterday. I said, oh, let's go in. I want to ask him a question. So we go in, and this nice uh, uh, clerk comes up and asks if she could help me. And I said, avez-vous un suspensoir, s'il vous plaît? She says, mais oui, mais oui, yes. And there they were, jock straps, all kinds of jock straps lined up on the floor in boxes, peeking out from a row of soccer jerseys. And she's down there on her hands and knees sorting through them, and her colleague comes over, and they're both down there sorting through these boxes. And uh, incidentally, I, I have to tell you two things. Uh, just in case you didn't know, Jock straps come in sizes. <laughs> I'm just saying. Number two, it's common knowledge over there that American guys are bigger than, taller than, taller than <laughs> Belgian guys, okay? And these girls are down there sorting through these jock straps and looking up at me. <laughs> and they're saying things like, Grand, grand, may no, may no, tre grand, tre grand. That's large, large, no, very large. And finally, the one girl, she says, may no, Maximo, poorly American, Maximo. It's the biggest size, and she hands me the box. Do you see what's going on here? They're sizing me up. This is a form of flattery. <laughs> I know, I know, blind flattery, it's okay, blind flattery, hey, I'll take it, it's okay. So they give me that jock strap, I pay for it, we leave, we go out for dinner. As soon as we get home, I am dying. I'm just dying to see my new jock strap, so take it out of the bag, I take it out of the box. And I'm look, looking at my new jockstrap, and I must tell you, this was a jockstrap for an elephant. <laughs> and I said, Lynn, uh, this won't work. It's too big. It's got to be exchanged, and it would just be too embarrassing for me. So <laughs> do you think you could take it back tomorrow? 
And Lynn, God bless her, she just gives me the biggest smile, and she says, no way, big boy, no way, no way. You are on your own. You've got to go back and tell those girls that they have overestimated you. <laughs> and by a large margin. <laughs> so I, I'm thinking, uh, you know what, they're probably working late Friday night in order to get the rest of the weekend off. I'm going in there first thing tomorrow morning. And I take that jock strap, I put it back in the box and back in the bag with my receipt, I figured there's going to be a new crew. They won't know anything about this transaction. <laughs> At 10 o'clock the next morning, I go walking uh, back into that sporting goods store. Same girl. <laughs> she asked if she could help me. I said, yes. I bought this here last night. And what I would like to do now is I would like to... Uh, I would like to buy another one for my son, and I'll pick it out myself. <laughs> and I got down there, and I actually opened the boxes, and I took those jock straps out, and I looked at them. I found one that I knew would fit me. I went up to the counter. I bought them both. <laughs> and that day, as I was leaving with those two boxes in that bag and walked into my car, I reached into the bag, and I got that jock strap for the elephant, and I pitched it in the trash can. And thereafter, I rode my horse with no discomfort in my new suspense wah. Next up, Ben Whiting's progress in building his body of work gets thwarted by an unexpected letter. It was a dark and stormy night. <laughs> My friends and I were having soup, whiskey soup, with H2O croutons. One of my friends said, hey, how about we play a card game? Now, being a magician, I was titillated. I love the idea of card games, but this was not your typical cards, your bicycle 808s. No, he wanted to play a game I'd never heard of called Cards Against Humanity. With those words, I have been opening for the last month my show Tricks Against Humanity. I would always ask the audience who's familiar with it, and then I'd ask who's not. And whoever clapped, I'd ask them uh, what in the world they were doing there and tell them to buckle up because it was going to be a long ride. And it was. Uh, but I really love the game Cards Against Humanity. And of course, if you like inappropriate things, if you like raunchy stuff, it's funny. It's just funny. It's my sense of humor. It's not everyone's, but it is mine. But more than that, what I really like about it is I've played the game now with people from all walks of life. And when you sit down with this body of work, what's really interesting is... No matter where you're from, you suspend judgment. No one gets offended, and yet, everyone is saying the most horrible things you can possibly think of. <laughs> and I think it's a little bit like life, because in life, all we can really do is play the cards we're dealt. But not always in life do people uh, suspend judgment. I don't know, maybe the world would be a better place if they did. Uh, I know it's an interesting game to play with your family. Uh, <laughs> If you've ever had your mother ask you what queefing was, that's a hell of an experience. And uh, I don't know if I recommend it, but it's in my repertoire now. And it's a true story. So our friends and I, we were playing this game, having a good time, and of course, we were drinking a little bit, and I started doing card tricks with the Cards Against Humanity cards. And it turns out the Two of Diamonds, the Seven of Clubs, the King of Hearts are not nearly as interesting as queefing dick fingers firing a rifle in the air while balls deep in a squealing hog. If you're not familiar with the game, I'm keeping it tame right now. <laughs> and I was thinking to myself, man, I bet this could be a, a really cool show. And it was so serendipitous because a local venue reached out to me and they said, Ben, we want to have some kind of event 
that will help us attract younger audiences? Do you have any ideas? And it just came right out of my mouth. Like, Tricks against humanity. Let's do a, an inappropriate magic and mind reading show for horrible people. <laughs> and they said, yeah, let's do that. And so I started working on it, and we did it that year. And this was four or five years ago. And the first run of the show was good. It was fun. It was a lot of fun. We played uh, swear word bingo. <laughs> Later on, I would levitate people. Uh, later on, we uh, had confetti all over the place falling down. It was a, it was a lot of fun. It's a whole lot of fun. So I was very, very lucky uh, about I guess four years ago now, I was offered a really great job. And I got to go around the country talking to people, inspiring them, and using my background as an entertainer and as a magician to you know, help people's lives. And I got to the point where I, I was like, you know what, I'd like to try and do this on my own. And you know, God bless my wife for being so supportive of it. Uh, but when you start a new business, you know, you start unemployed with no customers. That's just how it works. And so I got to rely on my body of work. I started bringing out old shows, Magic on the Rocks, Magic on the Vine, Tricks Against Humanity. And I was so fortunate that last October, um, someone from Turtle Creek Casino came to one of my shows. And they said, hey, this is, this is great. We'd like to see if we can amp this up a few notches and, and do it at the casino. And that was, that was a dream come true for me. I was like, absolutely, let's do it. Let's do it. So we started working on it, and I upped it up a little bit. And, uh, you know, there was always a part of me that wished I was kind of doing my own thing, like my own original show. But, you know, Cards Against Humanity, that's a hell of a brand. That works. And uh, I was happy to say, you know, we sold out the run before it even opened. And that's, that's a good story. That's a good story. Um, and it would be a good story if it ended there. But it doesn't. Uh, my wife and I were arguing one night about what television show our dog wanted to watch, <laughs> which really just turns into a ventriloquism off. <laughs> and it was fun. And I said, Aaron, I need, I need, I need, we have to stop making these weird voices for a little bit. And I need to read something to you. Subject line, tricks against humanity, the name. Hi, Ben. I work with the team that manages the legal work at Cards Against Humanity. The title of your show at Turtle Creek Casino has been brought to our attention. That word brought always bothers me. And while we appreciate the nod, we need you to ask you to not use this name or anything like it in the future. We won't get deep into the legal stuff in this note. But... We do own the trademarks on the name Cards Against Humanity and the look of our brand. And we think your title infringes on those protected rights. And as you may know, in the United States, if someone infringes on your trademark, it is your legal obligation to defend it. Otherwise, you risk losing it. So, I just wanted to get in touch with you directly, give you the opportunity, the opportunity to simply change the name, change the look for the future. Thanks in advance for being respectful. <laughs> Good wishes in your future success, Nick. And I thought to myself, well, maybe, maybe he just heard about it. Maybe it's, uh, maybe, do they really have any proof? And then within five minutes, I got another email that was simply an image of the giant billboard Total Creek put up with a logo <laughs> that says Tricks Against Humanity. My damn name next to it. <laughs> So, you might have noticed we added shows, but we never did anything beyond January 18th. Cards Against Humanity is actually a remarkably awesome company. Uh, I was uh, lucky within a few days of talking to lawyers uh, who told me <laughs> I shouldn't pursue this. And uh, I actually got to talk to the creator of the game, the owner. It's a hell of a thing to talk to someone who's created something that's had such an impact on your life, not just your creative work, but all these things, you know, with your friends. You know, I've made friends over this game. I got, as Freudian as it is, I got closer with my family over this bizarre game and talking about, God, dick fingers. The, uh, <laughs> so, the show's done. It's not going to happen again. But... I could be pretty upset. And you know, I, it's brought to our attention. I am kind of 
pissed about that. I don't, I'm curious about that word. But <laughs> I had a great mentor in life. I was very, very fortunate in college to be taught poetry uh, by Maya Angelou. She lived in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, and I went to, to college at Wake Forest University. And she had a, a few great quotes. And one was, you know, if you don't like something, change it. And if you can't change it, change the way you look at it. And it's really hard to argue with that. Uh, and so even though this show is done, we're going to create other things. We're going to combine the ideas from that uh, with other ideas, do future shows. And, and what my, Dr. Angelou said was this, you know, whatever you look for as you go through life, that's what you find. You go through the day and you try to find things to be pissed about, the little injustices, the little things that aren't fair, or things that can drive you insane. Guess what you're going to find? You're going to find it all. But if you go through the day and you look for opportunities, things to be inspired by, things to make you laugh, things to put you in a good mood, guess what you'll find? I look forward to finding uh, future audiences and hopefully better shows in the future. Thank you very much. Next, Betty Miller tries to go about her daily life after one of her patients gets into her head. I think your early 20s are a really hard period in life. No one tells you how clueless or awkward you'll feel. I went from being a Michigan State student to living in a big city thousands of miles from home. I went from doing keg stands with my peers to immediately taking care of really sick people. There was no transition between the two lifestyles and I really struggled with it. I sometimes felt too young for all the responsibility that was given to me. I was 23 when I started working as a night shift nurse on an inpatient oncology unit. I learned a lot and, and quickly became good at my job. I started to become protective of my patients and gave them all my energy, which is a lot when you're in your early 20s. After a couple of years, I was gaining experience, feeling confident, feeling like I was exposed to a lot. However, on a regular basis, I'd often leave the hospital surprised, sometimes thinking that was really messed up, reiterating that I have not seen it all. The hospital I worked at was a mid-sized community hospital just outside the city. Sometimes our unit took medical overflow, so that meant we were, I was taking care of patients without a cancer diagnosis. One weekday night, I was doing my usual 12-hour night shift, and my assignment sheet suggested that it wouldn't be too hard of a night. I had only four patients and only one didn't seem too sick. My assignment was easier because I had become charge nurse at 11 and absorb all those responsibilities. Room 27 was a younger woman on for, in the hospital for cardiac monitoring for chest pain. She also had a history of schizophrenia and was currently in a catatonic state. 30, room 36 was a gentleman in his 30s with colon cancer and had uh, complications with his chemotherapy. Room 37 was a woman in her 40s with acute leukemia and is neutropenic, which means she doesn't have much of an immune system. She is my scariest patient of the night because any life-threatening complication can occur at any moment. But she wasn't my most challenging. That would have been room 28 a woman in her 60s with COPD so severe that even talking made her short of breath. The COPD -er was particularly interesting during my initial interaction with her. I offered her a warm blanket. She asked if I was fucking stupid. I asked if she was in pain. She said I was fucking ugly. She offered some anti-Semitic commentary and made a few racist comments when she wouldn't let our Mexican CNA care for her. She repeatedly asked me to look in the bathroom, saying there's a man dressed in black in there. She yelled at him to get out of the bathroom and asked what he was doing there. Mind you, the bathroom was no more than six feet from her bed, and she could clearly see into the bathroom from where she was. 
And to be clear, there was no man in the bathroom. It was just her and I in the room. I needed to get on with my night, and I started to back out of her room. She yelled at me to stop. At this moment, she pointed her finger at me, looked at me straight in the eye, and said, you better hope I don't die on you tonight, because I will haunt you. <laughs> I'm not surprised by this threat. I've already had chronic exposure to all sorts of behaviors and abuse. In fact, the week before, an elderly woman with dementia who identified as a witch most her life cast spells on us staffed and chucked baby dolls at our head. <laughs> I take a couple moments stone-faced, trying to decide how I want to respond. Ultimately, I don't, and I walk out of the room. I decided she was not a good person, and I had to set an emotional boundary and not absorb the unwelcomed energy that she was. At about 9.30 that night, the COPD or calls light goes off, and I enter the room to see what she needs. She has to urinate and wants to use the toilet. I requested that she use the bedpan or the bedside commode, because with end-stage COPD, you want to conserve energy to prevent respiratory distress. She disagreed with my recommendation, and in fact, she called me a fucking cow and demanded I walk her to the toilet. I got her out of bed and to the bathroom and back. Just then, the CNA walked in the doorway and said, her face looks like death. In that same exact moment, the patient grabs her back, makes a facial grimace, and moans, oh. Within a few seconds, she goes limp and drops into my arms. I throw her in bed. She was not responsive and nearly immediately was agonal breathing. I yelled through the doorway at the physician and respiratory therapist who just happened to be standing there. The doctor and I were frantic. The patient was a DNR but not on comfort care. We were trying to decide what to do, but I remember the respiratory therapist just saying, no guys, it's happening. I stopped my frantic thinking and I just looked at her and I realized deep down inside, she could not be helped. I have no idea, but my guess is that her heartbeat ceased somewhere between 45 seconds and three minutes after she grabbed her back. It's fair to assume she threw a massive blood clot, immediately killing her lungs, and the remainder of her system shut down in the seconds after. The next few hours of that night continued to be hard. The acute leukemic went septic, the catatonic schizophrenic decided to say one thing, which was that she had chest pain. It was so busy I'd nearly forgotten about the odd experience with the copd -er. Eventually I got her body to the morgue, and I had a new patient in her room. I got antibiotics into the acute leukemic and didn't have to intubate her. Chest pain's labs and EKG were negative for any cardiac events. And thankfully, colon cancer just watched shitty TV all night long. <laughs> I leave the hospital that morning and stop by the neighborhood Taquiera for a breakfast burrito. I really loved this place and the staff there. They treated us night workers to a shot of tequila, which I had. I walked home and face planted in bed. I woke up at 3 o'clock that afternoon. I couldn't sleep any longer, so I decided to go for a run. When I started my last mile home, I began to sob. One of those tears and snot just streaming down your face sobs. It was so uncontrollable, and it came on suddenly. I actually stopped, and I looked around me because I felt like someone was right behind me, almost on top of me, right on my shoulders, breathing on me. I keep running home, but the feeling wouldn't leave. It felt like a person was going from side to side of me as I ran. It felt like an actual pressure that surrounded my whole body, not necessarily squeezing me, but providing enough force to let me know it was there. I didn't want this feeling. It was unwelcome. It was like I've been violated in some way, almost a feeling of fear and guilt comparable to physical assault. I didn't think to take the the threat of the COPD or of haunting me seriously. I'd never felt energy like this before. 
This wasn't in my world of thinking at 24. Anyway, there was really no time to address this. I got home and got into work mode. My shift that night was uneventful. I couldn't wait for the morning because I was getting a massage, gifted by a long-term patient's family after he passed away. At 7.30 that morning, I met the massage therapist in the unit's conference room, and we chatted for a bit. I put my head down in the massage chair, and she didn't start. I could feel her paused right next to me. She says, I normally wouldn't say this to anyone, but I feel comfortable saying this to you. I think you would handle it okay. There's someone else in this room. She's following you, and she's in the corner right there. <laughs> I look over at her, and I screamed in my head, and I had just fear on my face. Can you repeat yourself? <laughs> There's someone following you, and she's in the corner there. I immediately start sobbing. Well, someone dropped dead on me a couple nights ago, and an hour before that, she threatened to haunt me, and I can't stop this feeling that someone is right next to me. I feel so ill. Yep, that's her. <laughs> she asked if she could help me. I ended up not getting a massage. She led me through a visualization exercise where I envisioned a light being sent into an egg, and it exploded and she placed her hand on a few places on my body. It was near immediate. The sensation and tension that felt so ill was gone. I don't think I realized how terrible I felt until it left. I went home afterwards and continued to cry. I later figured out this was a traumatic experience for me, not because she was off or, or threatened to haunt me, but because the life was lost suddenly while in my care. A couple weeks later, another woman, whose chemotherapy I just completed, coughed blood and died three hours later. She wasn't supposed to do that because she was cured and otherwise healthy. I had nightmares about these two. I was consumed for a long while, reviewing their situations over and over in my head, thinking what I could have done differently. The fact was nothing would have been, could have been done differently. Neither of these women's outcomes could have been different. And despite how the COPD or treated myself and others, I know I gave her as much good care as she would let me. I'm 35 now, and I've been doing hospice care for a little while, and I feel like, I got, like I've got death down fairly well. I know that when a really sick person hallucinates people in the corner of the room, it means they're probably in the last days of their life. I know not to take it personally if a patient dies as comfortably as I wish they would. In my 30s, I'm now beginning to address what you might call the spiritual aspect of how we all interact with each other. I know now it's a fact that we are all connected. It's this fact that has left me feeling even more clueless than I did over 10 years ago. Thank you. And in our last story, Jody Ann Stevenson has to reconcile her countless feelings when she develops major doubts about her boyfriend and discovers she is pregnant. When I was four years old, my mother told me that all men are bad. She told me no man is ever to be trusted. My abusive father was having another affair, so she was in the middle of a crying jag as she said this. She said, honey, men only want one thing. And I wasn't old enough to know exactly what that one thing was, but thanks to the fact that I had already begun experiencing some sexual abuse, I had sort of a feeling in my body for what that one thing felt like. And it was shameful and dirty and scary. The abuse continued, and by the time I was 12 years old, I really felt, I knew, that my body was broken and worthless, and definitely not to be trusted any more than any boy or man. So consequently, I married my high school sweetheart at just eight, um, age 19, and fun fact, he date raped me the first time that we officially had sex when I was 15. He also went on to cheat on me many times. 
Um, I always had suspicions that he did that, but he was amazing at gaslighting when I would confront him. Um, and he always kind of turned it around and told me I was crazy like my dad. Um, so I believed him with everything that I had gone through with my body, not being able to trust it. I figured I couldn't trust my own mind either. So when I met this new guy, Tim, in New England, about a year after my divorce was final, I still didn't trust myself at all. I knew when we met that I'd be moving to Reno in about six weeks. Um, I'd been offered my first teaching gig at UNR. And I thought our relationship would be just like a fun little romantic fling, and then I'd move and we'd never see each other again. I did not definitely plan on falling in love with him. And the day I left New Hampshire, I planned to absolutely never see him again. Then, as I was driving out west, he planned to follow me. And despite all of my doubt and disbelief, I let him. Um, and then when Tim and I found out we were pregnant, <laughs> fast forward, we were both scared but excited. We were scared because we had only known each other for about 12 weeks. We had only been living together for six weeks. We just did not know each other very well. Um, we were excited he, because he was 33, I was 28. Uh, we both really wanted a baby. We felt like grown-ups. We had good jobs. Um, and for a few weeks after we found out we were pregnant, we stayed really excited. Then one day, we had our first big, big argument. We were talking about previous relationships. It was a subject I brought up often and that made him uncomfortable um, because I wanted to know him better and I wanted him to know me. And in his insecurity over a particular ex of mine, he told me I was no longer allowed to speak his name, this ex. So like forever, as long as we were together, I was never allowed to speak this man's name again. And it just hit me um, suddenly that since I was having a baby with this man, that might mean basically the rest of my life. So he expected to be able to control whose name I could or couldn't say in his presence for the rest of my life. Um, I just knew that this argument was a big giant red flag. I thought for sure that it was the shoe I was waiting to drop the moment I realized he was one of those bad men, um, someone I definitely couldn't trust and someone that would hurt my body again. And after that one argument in my fear, I decided I could not have this baby. And over several days, I convinced him um, that he didn't want to have a baby with me in all of my brokenness either. So this is how we found ourselves in a Planned Parenthood in Carson City, Nevada, discussing our options for the pregnancy I was about eight weeks into. Everything in that office was orange, everything. I feel like from what the woman was wearing that was talking to us, to the walls, to the desk, everything looked like it was orange. And I remember that that color just made me feel really nauseous for the first time in those eight weeks. The girl describing the procedure to me was much younger than me, and for some reason, I just was really mad at her. The doctor who could perform the abortion wasn't currently in the office. He was working between Lake Tahoe and Carson City, so we'd have to wait two weeks. I felt really sick, like I was going to faint or vomit, kind of like how I feel now. Um, Tim was sadder than I had seen him so far. Uh, we made an appointment for two weeks out, we thanked the girl, and we left the office. We had um, driven separately because we hadn't spoken for the last several days, and it just didn't make sense for us to drive together. But now we were going to drive back to our apartment in Reno about 45 minutes away, and I was glad to be out of the office, but very scared to drive home alone um, with how I was feeling. And uh, however, I just I couldn't let Tim know that I needed him or even wanted him, of course. Um, so I just got in the car and drove. And I drove back to our apartment where he had already um, begun to pack his things, feeling sicker and more scared than I have ever felt in my entire life. It was so sunny, I remember, on this drive. But it's always sunny in Reno, but I remember being very annoyed by the sun um, on this drive. It made me feel sicker and it made me feel dizzier. And so I really had to hold on tight to that wheel and focus my attention on the road. 
and the, the drive seemed to drag on and on and on. And I started sort of just make, mentally making plans for what I was going to do in two weeks after the um, procedure. And my big plan was to find the nearest bar. While Tim went home to leave and, and, and drive back to New Hampshire, I was going to find the nearest bar and just drink and drink and drink and just never stop drinking and drink until I was dead drunk. And for a moment on this drive while I was focusing, I just couldn't wait for that moment of complete um, numbness. And uh, when we got back to the apartment, we continued not to speak. I felt very exhausted and confused. I sequestered myself in my home office, uh, and I continued to think about what it would feel like to get rid of this baby. I thought about a doctor going inside of my body and taking the baby from me, and every cell in my body felt like it was screaming at me to not let this happen. I have never and would never begrudge anyone, least of all myself, for having an abortion, and I knew that's, if that's what I wanted, I had every right to make that choice. But for me, when I thought about a doctor doing this, it made me feel abused again and violated and helpless and powerless. And knowing that I could be really great at drinking myself into oblivion, like lots of people in my family, um, when I felt powerless and helpless, I knew that for me, that abortion was going to lead to a future of continued silent victimhood, at least as far as I could see into the future. And that was the life I was comfortable with because that's where I had always been. And I also knew that having this baby would be a step into an unknown future I couldn't even begin to imagine. Maybe it was a future in which I could learn to trust my own body and my own mind. I felt like for the first time, I actually did have a choice about what happened to my body. And I knew I didn't want that. I knew I had to make the choice to trust my body, to trust everything in me that was suggesting to me, maybe Tim and I could do this. Maybe I could do this. When I finally opened the door and asked him to come in to talk to me, it was obvious both of us had been crying for a very long time. I don't remember if he apologized for his insecure machismo during that big argument a few days prior, right then or later, but he did apologize. He realized how stupid and wrong it was for him to tell me I couldn't, I wasn't allowed to say a person's name. And because he knew a little bit about my past, he understood why I couldn't be with a man who was going to be that controlling. I told him that I had changed my mind. I told him I had to have this child, whether he was or wasn't a good man, though I thought he probably was. I had to have this child for myself. We were both visibly relieved after that. Tim looked like he might just melt into a puddle on the floor. He was so relieved. He was so happy that I had reconsidered. We embraced, we cried together again, and together we made the decision to have a baby. Throughout the next 32 weeks or so, he made me a nutrient-dense, high-protein fruit smoothie almost every day. <laughs> he researched how best to support a pregnant woman. He rubbed my back, rubbed lotion on my feet, made me tea, snuggled up to watch movies with me. Um, he got me extra pillows for my back and my knees, all the things. He did all the things. He went to the doctor with me, and when I decided I wanted to leave that doctor and trust a lay midwife to help me give birth at home, <laughs> he got on board for that too. I slowly learned to trust that this was not a man who wanted to hurt me. I slowly came around to the possibility that my mother might not have been entirely correct about every single man. With my midwife's help and the help of the community of home birth advocates I was meeting, I also slowly learned to trust my own body in the birthing process. I delivered our child into this world in a doula's tub in my own bedroom, which was swollen with Reno sun, on a Sunday morning after approximately 54 hours of early labor and eight hours of gut-wrenching, cervix-splitting, out-of-body, shock-inducing, pushing labor. Tim stayed close by my side. He said all the right things and proved that however flawed his own past had made him, he was a goddamn champion for a woman trying to prove that her body was more than the broken, abused thing so many people had told her it was. When our, body, when our, sorry, when our baby finally swam out of me and landed in his hands, I was truly shocked to feel and to see that my body had not turned inside out. <laughs> I was amazed that I hadn't imploded or exploded or collapsed inside that pain. I was whole. We were okay. And I had been right about this future. 
this was the future in which my body and I could and would begin to heal. Thank you. It's a family affair. And I don't know why I'm singing to this singing family. They are so much better at it than I am. Uh, as I mentioned earlier in this podcast, Crystal Frost and her brother Joe are here to talk with us about the upcoming February show theme, Dysfunctional. All caps fun, of course. So, Crystal, you've been a friend of hearsay since the very beginning. Yes, since day one. Yes. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> You're a natural. <laughs> <laughs> and you've been a friend of mine since the very beginning of me living in Traverse City. Yeah, yes, actually, since before you were born. Yes, <laughs> you knew I was coming. I did. Yeah, I, I saw it. I saw it. They, they spoke of your coming. Yes, <laughs> in those seven years before you were born. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't count. Yeah. Oh wait, no. I'm sorry. I just made you older. Nine, nine years. Okay. Anyway. <laughs> So it's also been almost a year that your brother Joe has been my boyfriend. Oh, look at that. <laughs> do, we, do we need like a sitcom? Ooh, Ooh they <laughs> like each other. Right, Joe? Yeah. Okay. I'm okay with that. Cool. I'll allow it. <laughs> I'll allow <Not> it. it. <laughs> Ringing endorsement. <laughs> So, um, actually, I, I mean, a lot's coming up right now in this very casual conversation. So, but I was going to say, is there anything more I need to know before I get more deeply involved in this family? Oh, any more you need to know about our family or about our dysfunction? Either one. What you got? <laughs> well, I don't know. I think that for me, I mean, like family and dysfunction are just the same word (laughs) it just is what it is I mean I don't know a single person who would describe their life as being you know coming from a completely functional family um and I think that there's something to be said about that because nobody's perfect you know Mm -hmm. yeah actually that's something that I googled the other day like what is a functional family because I've never heard that term used. <laughs> and, and please tell us, t- is there a functional family? The question that I put forth was answered with a question. And it basically said, and this was like from Psychology Today. So it says, um, families are not fair and we don't choose the one we are born or adopted into. Today, a family is what most people are in recovery from. What is a functional family anyway? Why doesn't yours match up? So basically the question is... The answer to the question is to ask the question again. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I mean, I, I don't know anybody who would say that they're from a, I, I know a lot of people say, oh, we're from a, a very middle class, you know, traditional family, two kids, two parents. But there's always some layer of dysfunction because humans are just inherently not perfect. And, you know, you, I, so, I mean, our family was definitely not perfect, Um and the level of dysfunction was so obvious, I guess, to me. I mean, I don't know. What do you think? It, I don't know. Growing up in it, you didn't really realize it until you started viewing other people's families. Yeah. 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 yeah pretty much. I mean, we had we had all of it. We had divorce and poverty, and we had some child abuse, and we had some, um, gosh, what else did we have? You know, a million sisters and brothers. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, we had a chain-smoking grandma who mm-hmm. almost burned the house down every time she would light a cigarette and forget that it was lit. <laughs> or she would put the cigarette in the actual drawers of the house. <laughs> Saving it for yeah. later. <laughs> yeah. well, while it's lit. Just forgetful. You'd open mm-hmm. up a, a drawer and all of a sudden you're like, I want a spoon for my Nesquik. Oops. Grandma's trying to burn down the house. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> I mean, yeah, or the the possum coming through the bathroom. Yeah, that was that was really fun. Yeah, that happened to you. Yeah, it did. That happened to a couple of us, but really happened to you. You were, you know, doing taking care of some business. I was also very young at that time. <laughs> tell us, tell us. You have to tell. I have to tell. I mean, uh, you don't have to. So there was a giant hole in the middle of our 
dad's trailer and we'd go over there on weekends and i this trailer ends up becoming condemned that's how awesome it was bad it was (laughs) because there was a terrible carbon monoxide leak and it wasn't safe for us to be there well uh in the middle of this you know before they found out about the leak yeah mind you before (laughs) in the middle of me doing what i was doing there's a possum that just pops up from the floor on says hello (laughs) (laughs) and did you scream when you saw it i mean i think it was more along the lines of of, you know yeah shock did it scream could have been that (laughs) on that show i know it just did the hissing thing and then you know all i I think dad was just like oh the possum's back yeah you know because that's what he would do did you all end up naming it <laughs> no yeah, i mean we should have maybe that's where moe came from um we, we i named it constance because everybody was constipated they did not want to use yes, the bathroom that's true <laughs> that's basically okay it. so when you say you were doing what you were doing that's uh-huh. the polite way of saying you were going to the bathroom yes i was okay yeah. you're you do that you do that well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's a part of why I'm terrified of doing that in public spaces now, which yeah. makes no sense. I mean, I don't think you should ever do it in public, though. Yes. Well, like, yeah. in a bathroom is okay. That is okay. But not, like, in the middle of a Target. Yeah. Okay. Mm. <laughs> I'm sure some of our family members would disagree with that. <laughs> I just feel like a dysfunctional family. It's funny because we're, we're chatting and we're making jokes about things because I think... That the way that you deal with your dysfunctional family, whether you have some very obvious dysfunction or you have some sort of underlying dysfunction, it tells a lot about how you're going to survive it. And we are the biggest jokers, you know, like Mm -hmm. we just make jokes about, about it all the time and we, you know, laugh about it all the time because if you didn't, I think, I think we'd be really depressed. Well, and insane. More than likely. Like, yeah. I, I don't know. I mean, you just you have to have levity in the tragedy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sounds like you're writing only a way song. To, yes, <laughs> I am. <laughs> it's already there. <laughs> um, yeah. No, I actually, I feel like, again, I mean, everyone thinks that their family is dysfunctional. Do you ever feel like, like someone's talking about their dysfunctional family and you're like, that's nothing? Yes. Sometimes. Yeah. yeah. Just sometimes? No. Oh, okay. But I'd, I'm not the type that's like one-up, haha. Uh-huh. Right. You know? Oh, no. We're not like Mario and Luigi over here looking for a one-up. You yes. know. It, but it is funny. My husband says all the time, you know, he'll say, Ugh, I can't talk to you about, you know, like I feel stupid telling you about my problems or maybe my familial dysfunction or whatever it is because you know you have and i'm like so much of it yeah you know (laughs) Uh, but it it, it's kind of true and it you know we're both older now and i just i think it's funny because we've had different um decades of dysfunction if you will Mm -hmm. (laughs) and you know when you survive your childhood and then you get into your own you know creating your own dysfunction for your own families and i don't know it's like the big beautiful circle that never (laughs) never ends Mm -hmm. (laughs) right yeah 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 no i think uh like having a sense of humor about it like that's so i do the same thing like i 